0: Welcome to the Disease Du Jour podcast on the topic of rhodococcus equi-pneumonia in foals with Macarena Sands, DVM, DACVIM, PhD, and Assistant Professor in Veterinary Clinical Sciences at Washington State University. I'm your host, Kim Brown, Publisher of Equimanagement. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2022 by Merck Animal Health. Dr. Sons began her duties at Washington State in 2015. Prior to that, she was a postdoctoral assistant at the Gluck Equine Research Center, where she got her PhD in equine immunology and infectious diseases. She had previously earned diplomate status in large animal internal medicine and her master's from Washington State in equine pain management. Dr. Sons received her DVM in 2000 in her native Argentina. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sons.
1: Thank you very much, Kim. I really appreciate being here today.
0: Well, I'm really excited, and I know our audience is too, because we're in the perfect season for you to tell us a little about your research and to share some knowledge about our equine pneumonia. So I'm just going to turn it over to you and let you tell us some information.
1: Super. I think uh, what my idea for this, um, this time was to put together what we know so far. In some of the stuff that is new because we do have a fair amount of new research coming up that is very exciting and I think it will be useful for practitioners. So that was the idea. And why do I get into Rolococcus and I like this research so much is because Rolococcus is very common infection. It affects young foals all over the world. Um, so if you do any foal work, you will come up with Rolococcus, unfortunately. And we don't have a vaccine available to prevent this disease, which makes it um, more problematic to deal with. So a little bit tiny touching on Rolococcus itself. It's a gram-positive bacterium, and the thing that is very important is to understand that it's everywhere in the soil where you have horses around. And the reason is before we knew that it was present in a fair amount of a mountain, normal, the manure of normal fall horses, so mares, we used to move these mares around the paddocks all over the place, trying to prevent or getting them to a clean paddock. But now we know, you know, while you can decrease the amount of manure out there, uh, moving horses around doesn't do you a lot of good because the mare goes with and they have it in their manure. And, but we do know also that the manure of the falls that are infected and their nasal discharge, they have a lot more than most mares. So they are kind of like the main um, shedders, if you wish, of a place. And then once it hits the ground, uh, falls will get it by mouth or inhaled, but anything that has to do with aerosolizing these samples uh, high concentration of horses when you move them a lot. Again, we were moving these horses back and forth and and that made robococcus aerosolize more. So then we and then we were getting them together. So those were things that we were doing worse, trying to do good. If you are in a barn with low ventilation, then for sure more robococcus there. And if it's dusty and dry, then of course all that dust getting her up. So I think it's everywhere that's important in the mare, you know, so you have it in the fall. And then the other thing to understand about Rolococcus is you can have a lot of Rolococcus, but not all rollococcus will infect falls. So there are Rolococcus that are non-pathogenic. They're just part of the flora and part in the, of the soil uh, population. And then there are the ones that are uh, pathogenic to falls. And the difference in between a non-pathogenic and a pathogenic it's a surface protein that is called VAPA, virulence-associated protein A. And that is very important when we go to diagnostics because you can find Rolococcus pretty much in the manure and in some of the lung samples of falls because it's everywhere. But in order to say that is the one bacteria causing the disease, you need to test for this VAPA to be sure that the Rolococcus is pathogenic. Um, so I think a lot of the times we see um, the laboratories do culture and PCR together just to say, yes, it is rhodococcus, but it's also pathogenic Rolococcus. because otherwise it's very common everywhere. So once the foal get, they inhale it or eat it, um, they will get affected. But adult horses are resistant to infection. And um, unless they're immunosuppressed, like we had some cases, for example, horses with lymphoma can get Rhodococcus disease. Um, I had a horse with leukemia, a different form of cancer. So those are, yes, they can develop Rhodococcus, but if their immune system works well, then they won't. And this is true for people. So this, Rhodococcus is an important disease of people that had organ transplants and or with HIV infection. Um, and it's becoming a big problem because we have a lot of people out with this type of um, problems, right? So they, they might have surgery and they're on immunosuppressive um, drugs and also small animals. So cats and dogs, we actually had a cat, a dog, sorry, in the clinic about a month ago that was on immunosuppressive drugs for a different treatment, something related to skin, and they showed up with severe rolloccal pneumonia. Uh, because the the dog lived with a horse, and we think that's how she got it. Um, So in dogs and cats, we do see a fair amount. It's usually a delayed um, diagnosis because nobody thinks of Robococcus as a first diagnostic. But nonetheless, adult horses absolutely um, unfazed by this if they're healthy. But foals, though, foals is a different thing. They do become infected very early in life pretty much as they're born, they come in shortly after birth. We know because it's everywhere and in the mares, manure. Um, And usually they are susceptible into an early age. No, we say no more than the first month, but in reality, it's the first two to three weeks. And this is new. This this knowledge that they're only infected early on is just new from the past 10 years. And we have been doing a lot of research with the wrong idea. And I'll get back to that a little bit later, but that is very important because it's changing the way we think about rural coppers. The one thing we still don't know is why falls. What makes a fall that is two weeks old uh, be susceptible and an adult or a fall that is two months old that might not be, and and we don't know. I think it's going to be a combination. That's part of the, the interest I have on the research what makes them susceptible. We know they're not born with an immune system that is fully functional, but we cannot tell right now which part or parts of that immune system um, is responsible for this susceptibility. How do they get it? Well, they get it by mouth. So we know folks actively eat the mare's manure and that's how they colonize their own gut with bacteria. So they will eat it, they also, as they're trying to nurse, the manure might be running down the mare's legs and the other. so they're always in, in uh, contact. What we don't know a lot is about this oral route, what is the role in the pathogenesis. Um, there, in the early years when we didn't know much about caucus and we didn't have good ways to um, diagnose it early. We saw a fair number of these folks that develop um, enterocolitis or enteritis, severe form of, of intestinal disease. We don't see as many now, still out there, but not as many. But we don't know if that is out of oral infection or it's just a systemic infection that lands on the gut. So we don't really know. Um, but unfortunately, this oral, um, this and enterocolitis disease and it carries a little bit worse prognosis. Again, maybe because at the time we caught them very late, so it was very advanced, um, and we don't see it as often right now. But the main route that this holds, and the, most of the knowledge is by, that we have is about inhalation. So when they inhale this bacteria, it gets all the way deep in the lung, which is different than some other bacteria, to the very end of the lung, and infects the macrophage there the alveolar macrophage is kind of like the target cell because the macrophages are responsible for cleaning up um, this, any bacteria that makes it that far. Um, if we have a Rolococcus that has vape, and it's a vape positive, so one of these that can cause disease, then the macrophage will eat it like it will do any other bacteria. But this Rolococcus can escape killing inside the cell and also, because it's inside the cell, the body doesn't know it's there, right? So it's hiding inside the macrophage. And in there, it replicates and replicates until there's no more room. Then it bursts that macrophages and infect other macrophages around the area. And that's what we get what we have is called a granulomatose. Um, so a lot of cells, slow growing, but persistent growing very similar to human tuberculosis. So when we think about rodococcus in falls, we should think about tuberculosis in people. And you can have this slow-growing disease for years before you become clinical. For us, in falls, it's very similar. It's just months. It's just the shorter period of time. And that is the reason that slow, insidious growing that we usually saw clinical signs when they were three months To four months of age, so before we have ways to look into the chest, like for example with ultrasound, we thought they were getting infected at three months, or because that that time is when the antibodies from the mare decreased So it was kind of like made sense to say, well, they're more susceptible to infection. So everything we did research-wise was under that premise, and there are like many, like we spent years infecting old folds, And the problem is when you try to infect old folds, you have to give them a track load of bacteria or they won't get sick. So you have to put it down in the trachea all the way, tons of it. And then what you get as a result is a very severe, almost fulminant pneumonia that has nothing to do with the disease we see. So when we were trying to infect these falls, for example, to see, will a vaccine work? Will plasma work? Well, nothing worked because the disease was very severe um, and foals will end up euthanize. You know, you had to euthanize them in two, three days because they developed these massive pneumonias, no time for abscesses. So the, the disease was very different. And now we know that they're early. They get, you know, as they're born, that first week they're infected. So that has changed um, the way we do research. But of course, we have a lot of resources and years of of research spent where we can really use that information anymore. Um, We've learned a lot of things, especially out of a lot of the in-vitro stuff. But with the in vivo, I feel like we have to redo a lot of these things um, only because of the model. So we we now have a model, a better model, that takes very little bacteria to get into the trachea of this false, and then they will get this disease. The problem is when you're, if you decide that Rhodococcus is going to be what you do for research, like in my case, it's not cheap and it's not easy because we have to wait for the whole year for pregnancy, right? 11 months before we can get false to infect. And that is, Extremely costly. So the other thing is falls are very different. It's not like mice that we have. All mice are the same, you know, genetically equal. So then we deal with individual variation, and that then you need a larger number of falls, and again more expense. And honestly, there isn't a lot of money devoted to equine research, just because it's not a huge market for anything you do, right? So small animals and production animals are way above. So people tried um, to do other animals. Can we use other animals for models to speed up the things we do? And the answer is no. So mice, for example, which is would be fantastic if it would work, mice are only susceptible if you wipe up their immune system. So they have to be genetically modified, absolutely immunosuppressed, and then we can get them infected. But then they get a very different disease. They get systemic disease, bacteremia, not the abscesses in the lungs. Um, We try small ruminants like goats, and they get um, some um, infection in the lymph nodes, so not pneumonia. Guinea pigs, which are guinea pigs, sounded close enough. And guinea pigs, again, super resistant to infection. You give them different loads of bacteria and nothing happens to these guinea pigs. So not a good model. So we're left with infecting foals not many, a lot of resources to do that. And also, you know, it takes if something fails and you need to redo the research, then it takes another year to get ready and, you know, decide, oh, I need to adjust the dose or maybe do a vaccination at a different time. So it's slow. That's the biggest thing.
0: Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of prestige vaccines, banamine, panicure. Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their ongoing investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program at merckanimalhealthusa.com. But back, going back to
1: this, a little bit of the pathogenesis, we do know that Falls, if you have falls in a farm that we call endemic or that has problems with roller equa, which is pretty much most most farms that have a fair number of falls, um, at least at least half of the falls will be infected with rollococccus and will have some sort of subclinical disease. Okay. Um the farms I work with before it they have somewhere close to seventy percent sixty seven, which means that six or seven falls out of ten if you ultrasound them. Will have lesions in the lungs. That doesn't mean they have clinical signs, but they have lesions in the lungs. Now, what is super interesting, and that is the the main focus of my research, is okay, of the infected folds, the ones that we look with the ultrasound and have lesions, only about 20% develop clinical disease. The other 80 or 70 or 80% will clear the infection on their own without the aid of treatment. Why is this? Why are some folks, you know, that 20%, why are they susceptible? It's We don't know, and it's the million-dollar question. Can we identify that 20% and only treat those and closely monitor the other ones? Um, We wish we could have a tool to do that because then it will minimize the amount of falls that we're treating for sure. So, and we'll get back to this, you know, 20, 80% when we talk about treatment and resistance. Um, As far as clinical signs, clinical signs of disease vary. They're going to vary with the location of of the infection. But most common, we say the most common form is the pulmonary form, so pneumonia. And it's no different. I think fever and lethargy are the things that people pick. There might be um, anorectic. When you have a crew, usually farms that have endemic rotococcus have a very well-trained crew that walks around the paddocks and they can pick up these holes. What you see is they're not playing as much as the others. They might be standing still, and they have a little bit of a faster breathing, faster respiratory rate, or maybe more effort to breathe and This is a lot worse if it's in a place where it's hot and humid um where I used to work in Argentina, that was the weather, and we could pick up these holes very easily um I think by the time there are three months, for example, here in Washington, we have a drier uh, weather, so it's not as bad. you'll pick them up, but I think the hot. Um, Heat and humidity puts a lot of strain on these falls. They might be coughing. I think that's when the disease is a little bit more advanced. And nasal discharge, same thing. By the time you have nasal discharge, then there's a little bit more um, advanced disease. And I, I think people in farms, they pick them up a lot sooner than that. And of course, if you have falls that are not watched, that's closed, and they had disease for a long time, then weight loss, these falls are not growing as much. Their hair coat is not good. Um, and they have that chronic cough and nasal discharge. And then the other thing is, Rhodococcus, on top of pneumonia, gives us what we call extrapulmonary lesions. And these lesions are, um, like the name um, indicates, is they're outside the lung. They can be anywhere. So we talked a little bit about earlier about that gastrointestinal infection and things that we see with that is maybe the foals have softer manure for longer period of time, or diarrhea. Very poor growth, poor hair coat. And this one is fairly deadly, or used to be fairly deadly. Again, I think we were catching them a lot later. But it, rotococcus can also go get into the bone. And it has this predilection, we think, because it gets systemic. So bone growth plates, uh, vertebra. So sometimes we get abscesses in the neck. Or this, you know, along the spine. And those are extremely hard to diagnose. Because the only thing you know is I have an abscess somewhere. But depends on the size of the fall, we may or may not be able to do a CT or see it with ultrasound. And many times we're just treating this blindly without knowing where we're treating. And unless you treat with the right set of antibiotics. Rhodococcus will keep growing because it's very resistant. It's very hard to kill. And that's why if you have a foal that has clinical signs or blood work signs of consistent with an abscess and you are in, a, in an endemic farm, your choice of antibiotics might be those for Rhodococcus because otherwise there's a fair amount of time that you'll be treating and the foal will not be responding. Um, and, the, and again, like I mentioned, the hard not being able to get a sample is just the most common scenario for this because many times we don't even know. It's in the middle of the abdomen. Is it somewhere in the spine? We have no idea where it is, but we can get it sampled. Um, and then a little bit of a different, less common um, presentation is what we call immune-mediated polysinovitis. And this is just the immune system reacting to because It's not the bacteria. It's just that the immune system reaction affects the joints. And it, you'll see falls coming in with a bunch of joints that are swollen or effusion in the joints. And they're usually not super painful. Like if we have a fall that walks in with effusion in the joints, we're thinking about some sort of septic arthritis. And that would be poor prognosis. We need to flush. We need to do all kinds, of intra-articular in, um, antibiotics and, systemic antibiotics and- These falls usually respond to corticosteroids. And as we get rid of the infection, then the immune system quiets down. So corticosteroids for these falls, And it's important to keep in mind that because they're not as painful, like I say. I think it's a lot of effusion, multiple joints, so it's scary to see. But they turn to do fairly well. And as far as the prognosis, if we have the pulmonary form, we have very good prognosis. Like most of those falls, we put them on treatment, like not over ninety percent, and they will do absolutely fine. It's a long treatment, and we'll discuss that. But they do well for all the extra pulmonary uh, lesions. It all depends where it is. How soon can we start treatment? If we have, for example, falls, they have a vertebral abscess. I don't know in the neck. Those are really hard to treat or Um, osteomyelitis, so it depends where it is, how much is affected, how soon we can get it, but of course the prognosis is, we say, a little bit worse, although we put them on treatment and then we see how they do, but it's a little bit less predictable, let's say. If we're suspicious of a fall with Rolococcus, in general, the farms where Rolococcus is endemic, I think any pneumonia, is uh, bacterial pneumonia, is bacterial pneumonia, it doesn't matter if it's prolococcus or not. So the idea is that you would do the diagnostics that you would, for any bacterial pneumonia. And in the case of falls is just perform a transtracheal wash, which is to take a sample of the fluid in that trachea. And there are two ways to do that. You can do it using an endoscope, as long as you have a, a special tubing that goes through and is sterile because we need a sterile sample. Or um, we do here a lot of percutaneous, so through the skin, a small needle in, um, with a transracheal wash kit that they come commercially available. Um, And then we take the sample and we submit that sample for culture. If you have the ability to culture and PCR, so we know that it's rhodococcus, but it's the pathogenic rhodococcus. Sometimes you don't have that option, depending on the lab, And then always, and this is true for any pneumonia, always culture with cytology because the trachea is not sterile. There is going to, there are microorganisms there. So unless you have, unless you have a cell um, indication like inflammation, superative inflammation, a positive culture doesn't mean that it's a bacterial pneumonia. And that is true for For all these diagnostics that we do for pneumonia. And in general, the farms, what they do is they send the first one or two to the labs just to be sure that's what they are dealing with. And then after that, in an endemic farm, because you have 50 to 60% of these falls with some sort of lesion, then we make a diagnostic based on the age. You know, these are two to three months old falls, the fact that you're an endemic farm. Clinical signs, and then we see the abscesses that are very characteristic on ultrasound because they're on the most caudal dorsal part of the lung. You can see them well. Might be more than one, so we don't need to send a sample for every single phone. I think once you have that, um, then it's easy enough. The problem is, ultrasound is fantastic. I think a ultrasound thoracic, having the ability to look into the chest. Um, has made us realize, like, for example, that the, the infection is a lot earlier than what we anticipated. But the problem is we've been using, since the 2000s, we've been using this ultrasound as a um, way to screen phones. So before, you would wait until you saw clinical signs, and then we would treat those horses, and we were treating about 20%. Then we started doing this ultrasounds. And with ultrasound, we realized, oh, you know, the, as early as six to eight weeks, these falls have lesions. They have abscesses, and they have abscesses on both lungs, and these abscesses keep on growing, and they might be actually some substantial abscesses. And that's when we started treating every single fall in the farm with antibiotics. And that, of course, decreased the number of falls that went all the way into developing clinical science. So it was, if you wish, um, success on that side. Yes, we got a lot of treatments. Of course, treating is not cheap, involves a lot of human power, manpower, because these are oral medications. We have to go catch these falls and treat them. And it's long-term, but prevented the disease, the development of falls with fever and cough and, Only problem is, as we were treating so many falls, of course, the end result of that is resistance. So now we have a huge problem, especially if you work work in places like most of the information we have is from central Kentucky, but I don't think it's any different if you are in areas where there's a lot of treatment. Treating too many falls for many years, of course, landed us on antimicrobial resistance. And the problem with resistance is um, there are multiple problems with resistance. One is falls that are infected with a resistant strain are a lot harder to treat, and they die more often. They're seven times more likely to die than a fall that is infected with a non-resistant strain. And the prognosis, like I said before, if you have a pulmonary fall with pneumonia, you treat them as 90%, that drops to 40% survival. So 4 out of 10 instead of 9 out of 10 if you have a resistant strain. The other problem with resistant strains is we treat the falls. We mentioned that the falls that are infected and sick are the ones that shed the most. So if they're shedding resistant strains, the next crop of falls Are picking up those strains and also the mares as they're grazing are picking up these strains and shedding these strains with our manure so we're selecting for resistance and then our new crop of foals get infected infected with resistance strains and then on top of that there's a lot of work done out of Georgia University about resistance and they saw that this um, resistance, the genes that go, encode for this resistance for Rodococcus are inserted in mobile elements. They call it mobile elements. So maybe we have one bacteria, one Rodococcus equi has the gene that encodes for resistance, and it can transfer to a completely different bacteria in the environment. So now we have other bacteria that could pick up that resistance. And that bacteria might not be just for infecting foals; It might be infecting cattle or people. So that is um, the downside of this fantastic idea that we have about scanning and treating everything. And on top of everything, the drugs that we use to treat people are very similar to the ones that we use to treat horses. And we don't have an option. We right now... Uh, a group of antimicrobials that we'll discuss, but basic, basically macrolides and rifampin. that is it. And we're not going to get new antimicrobials. So I think we need to be um, very conscious. This, again, is very new, this whole idea of we're treating too many, we're faced with a huge problem. So because now we're looking, we're looking to see, is there resistance? And we're finding a ton of resistance. Um, And at the same time, as we were doing this treatment, screening, you know, treating a lot of false developing resistance, we were very lucky that a group in Germany that is led by Dr. Benner, they had a, a massive... Uh, operation there with a lot of falls every year and they were trying to see since they had a big rollococcus problem can we find a treatment that instead of being twice a day is once a day or is there a better treatment that so we have to treat for less days and very luckily for us their experimental design allowed us to they included control not treated falls so before here in the US and everywhere where else in the world, I think, when people were doing research, trying a new treatment, we were always compare the gold standard treatment versus the new treatment. But we never had a non-treated group. So when Dr. Venner's group started to include a non-treated group, what they saw is that there's this 80% of falls that no matter what we hit them with, we can do hand in position if you wish. And they will get better, right? And that shows that a good study design where you have a controlled population, that was revealing to all of us. We're like, oh, we were thinking that these antimicrobials we give fix everything. When in reality it's the fall fixing everything. In 80% of the of the cases. And I think that is her studies, and then subsequent to that, right? There are a lot more, but her studies is what opened everybody's eyes and say we are treating too many but there is the option we don't have to and now we're all focused on trying to see okay which ones do we treat how can we get the closest we can to that 20 percent that really needs treatment and we don't have an answer yet but i think we're getting close so some of the new approaches that she's developed in Germany and that we're using here in, um, in uh, the US and there's some new studies out of Lexington. Also, we're trying to use a combination of things. So for example, we treat, everybody scans the false, maybe we're not scanning them as often, So now maybe they get scanned every other week instead of weekly or twice weekly. We were scanning this false twice weekly before and we were treating anything. Like an abscess that was one centimeter of diameter, we were treating. Now we develop this idea that maybe we just add all the abscesses, we measure all the abscesses, and then it depends on the farm and on the comfort of each veterinarian because you have to know your farm. It's not going to be a one rule fits all. We go for a sum of abscesses that are maybe 15 centimeters. Or 12 centimeters. But it's not only that. You have to also look at okay, what is the white cell count? So if they have multiple abscesses and they're big and a very high white cell count, which depending again on the farm might be 18,000 or 16,000, and a high fibrinogen, 800, 900, then you treat. And um, Dr. Benner recently, they just recently published an article on they, they were trying to stretch. Every year they will stretch a centimeter or two these abscesses and they will increase the white cell and the fibrinogen. So they started with, we're going to treat only six centimeters and a fibrinogen of 600. And then the next year, so nothing happened, right? They didn't have any more death. So the next year, they increased that, okay, we're going to do eight centimeters and maybe 10,000. And now they are like 16 centimeters and 18,000 and you still no more death. That what they had before when they were treating everything, but they're treating half or less of the falls. We're still not to that twenty percent, but it's it's a compromise, right? And um, So I think we're getting a lot closer, and I think now we all know that that's the way we need to go. And I foresee that this is going to be fast. We're gonna we're gonna find a balance that is much closer very soon. I think because most of us realize that what we were doing is no longer sustainable. Um, I think we need to spread the word that this is what's happening and things like this podcast will help. Um, And because not everybody is aware and not everybody has access to these new papers, right? We, um, you have to pay a subscription. I'm lucky enough that I work at the university and we have access to all these publications, but having the time and the access, especially the access is not for everybody. So I really appreciate this type of, Of opportunity to share with people. Um, And then, if we look at the treatment very quickly, I think treatment is very standard. It has been for the longest time. Um, We made some progress on this, but I think it's one of the least progresses for now. Uh, Always a combination of a macrolide. So, we have new macrolides now acetromycin and claritromycin. Um, So, always a macrolide and rifamping. And the advantage of acetromycin is. You can do it once a day for five days, um, Claritroma, and then every other day after that. So, in if you have to treat a lot of falls, that helps. Uh, Claritromising, maybe a little bit better. We do it twice a day, so it's a little bit more work. But either one of those two modalities works. The only problem is you have to treat these falls for six to eight weeks. So, if you have one or two falls, it's no big deal. But we, when we were treating a lot of these falls, I used to work on a farm that had 180 mares falling. So that's 180 fall. By the time we finished crashing the tablets of the morning treatment, we had to start again crashing the tablets of the afternoon treatment. And it's like a never-stopping medication of horses for months. On top of that, um, there are some side effects that you have to be careful. And a lot of these macrolides, they inhibit the ability of the fall to sweat. So you have to bring them inside or have a very well ventilated because they will die of heat, uh, stress. So we were moving these falls out at night and bringing them in before, you know, the early morning. And now you have to clean all this bedding that maybe if you weren't treating, these falls are outside. So those are the things that are important and falls can't sweat for up to two weeks after you finish. So it's a very prolonged treatment. um, like management, and it takes an army of people to go get the mayor, get the full, you know, crash the tablets, get them ready. So um, a lot of money into that, not just the medication, but the personnel to do these treatments. Um, because of this, there are other macrolides that we are looking into that are called monodoses or monotherapies, because it's a once-off dose every few few days, like usually once a week. Uh, tulatromycin is one not as effective if you use it alone. There's a recent publication just this year where they looked at tulatromycin and rifampin, and it seemed to be that it's a good alternative. Now we have to be very careful because these monotherapies have been only tested on folks with mild to moderate pneumonia. So we don't know if it's going to be as effective if you have a more severe pneumonia. And then gametromycin, which is also an intramuscular once a week, worked well. The problem is a lot of side effects. So these falls had swellings and they were lame, like 60%. So six out of 10 of these falls had some sort of problem. Um, And some of them were very painful. Like a third of those falls were like really lame. They all resolve on their own. But when we're looking at giving multiple doses, because this is not a one week only, it's just week after week after week, then I, I think I wouldn't pick gametromycin myself if I'm looking into um, doing these treatments. So right now, the recommendation um, for most groups that do research on royal and most experts is not to use these monotherapies on their own. You know, we have to see what this tulatromycin combination with rifampin does in the future because it's fairly new. Might um, get a... Um, Maybe some traction there, it will be a lot easier. Although you still have to do the right pumping once a day by mouth. So it's not like it's a once a week, but it gives you less stuff to medicate. Um, this macro, every time we put any fall or any course on, on antimicrobials, diarrhea, right, is a possibility. In general, falls have a self resolving diarrhea, but if not, you have to swap medication. And and that's a problem. We don't have a lot of alternatives. So something like doxycycline, rifampin, some people are trying. We don't have a a lot of data on that. Uh, I think we have tried all antibiotics, all forms, all formulations. And so far we land on, yeah, back to macrolides. And that's why the resistance is very important because we don't have good alternatives. Um. There's also reports, there are older reports and out of Europe where they had mayors that, so the mayors of these falls that we, they were treating developed severe colitis and some of them died. We haven't seen that very often, but it's some, also something to take into consideration, you know, monitor the mayor, be sure that the mayor is not getting soft manure or getting sick. Um, but like I say earlier, we are, you know, there's a need for changing the approach to treatment. And I think now most people understand that and we're all working on a balance. And there is not gonna be a recipe that can be applied to all farms. I think each farm needs to slowly start stretching. It's gonna depend also on the owner of the farm, you know, how long they're willing to wait. But um, it was a not an easy sell, I think, at first. Because everybody's like, um, and I always, you know, if you see abscesses as a veterinarian, it's hard not to do anything. And I can tell you when I, it's just a side story, when I was doing my PhD, I did my PhD un, under Dr. Horov, um supervision, and he's an immunologist, but he's not a veterinarian. And by then I was, a, you know, an internal medicine diplomat. I had seen a lot of falls, a lot of abscesses. When we were infecting these falls, and we will do ultrasound. And I will see the fall grow. We ultrasound them twice a week. And I could see the abscess growing. And we were waiting, right, on this falls. And I was like, oh, there's no way this fall is going to clear this abscess. And uh, we our uh, way to go about this was like, we used to bet Malbecs, because I'm from Argentina, right? And Dr. Horrofoff likes, like any other person, good wine. So we used to bet Argentinian Malbecs. And I can tell you, I paid so many so many uh, ones to Dr. Hora. I, I think he had a stash you know. by the time I finished because some of those falls had massive abscesses. And then one day the abscess stopped growing and then they will fill in and they will heal on their own. So patients, it's nerve wracking. And I understand the pressure of you have a super expensive fall and the owner sees the abscess and you want to treat it. But I can tell you, my experiences they will heal. You know, and of course, nobody's saying don't monitor horses. I think close monitoring and and watching those folks closely will do us a, a a lot of good. Um just wrapping up a little bit, what about prevention? We talked about there is no vaccine. There's um there are a few groups working on vaccines right now. Um, the only problem with vaccines is before, we thought, again, back to our understanding of this disease, we thought folks got infected like when there were three months. So there was time for vaccination. Now we know they get infected as they're born. So vaccinating newborn folks I've I done that for research, is very unrewarding. They don't respond very well to anything. And also, you need two doses of vaccine. So by the time we get the two doses, so those at birth, those by the time that three weeks, old, oh, they're no longer susceptible. So vaccinating foals is unlikely to work. I'm not saying it won't. It's unlikely, I think, to prevent infection and might aid or help uh, a faster recovery, a tougher immune response, uh, faster clearance. That might be it. But as prevention of infection, I think it's going to be hard. And that's why we're looking at vaccinating mares. And this is not a new concept or idea. We should try vaccinating mares for the longest time, and there's a lot of conflicting evidence on that. I think as, as vaccines get better and our understanding of maybe protection and immunity of these false is better, we will end up getting some sort of vaccine that we can give mares um, or plasmas, which is what we're using now. Um, and the, the concept of plasma is we vaccinate mares, we bleed or donors, blood donors. Um, Vaccinate them with raw They mount an immune response. Then we take that plasma that has antibodies and other proteins that we don't know what they are or how they work, and then we infuse this to newborn fold. And for the longest time, there was a lot of conflicting evidence about you know does it work, or or it does or it doesn't for plasma. And I think it had to do a lot with the dose that we we're using. When we were giving the plasma, it's not the same to give a liter to a 50 kilo foal or a 100 pound foal at birth than giving a liter to a foal that is a week older where they are much larger and more dilution. Um, we have looked at plasmas, at the products themselves, and there's a huge variation in this plasma products, even if you buy the same lot, which is crazy to me because they're not cheap. These plasma products are expensive but they're very variable, so maybe that also adds to this variable results. Um, I think now that we know when they get infected and we're focusing on giving these plasmas first, you know, those first few days of life, we do see, and I think most people will agree, that good quality plasmas will decrease the disease severity. And if we give, there's recent information just out of this 2021, there are multiple studies that, look, they're retrospective, so we need to do more work. But at least we have some evidence that giving two liters of plasma is better than one liter of plasma. Now, when we give plasma, we don't only give antibodies. We give all kinds of things, um, including some unwanted viruses to this (laughs) falls. So we need to look at, what are we giving? Are there any other proteins other than antibodies? Any of those could be more beneficial because maybe we can get a more purified version of plasmas that will be more effective. And I think that is all to come as we understand better this disease. Um, we do know for sure when you give plasma, they get less severe disease, so they're able to clear better that disease, and that results on and less number of holes that you need to treat. That has the caveat, though, that you have to wait because plasma doesn't prevent infection. So you will see, if you're doing ultrasound, you will see the abscesses. So as abscesses is the end point for your treatment, plasma doesn't do any good because you will have the lesions. But we've shown on experimental infections that they get less severe, smaller size abscesses, the white cell count doesn't go as far as high or for that long. So the inflammation is shorter because they heal faster. And also, we um looked at the manure of these falls and they shed a lot less pathogenic rawcoccus. So, of course, we didn't look into what will this do over the years, but you would think that if the falls are the main shedders and we can decrease that with plasma, then there will be less shedding and less, um, there's always gonna be rollococcus, but at least we will decrease a little bit that pathogenic load or that's the hope. We have not done the research to prove that, but we looked at the manure of these faults and for sure the ones with plasma had less less rotoconcus. Um, So I think it's a lot of work it's gonna come out I, now that we have our headset on we need to do less treatment and find better prophylaxis and better diagnostics to identify these folks that really need treatment um, because caucus is very common and it's not gonna go anywhere. Um, so I think this need of new strategies, everybody's working together now, which is also very nice. We have the ability to share information. A lot easier than what it was years ago where you had to wait until someone published something or you had to get to a meeting and now with communication it's a lot easier so i think we'll move faster at a very slow pace compared to other species because we have a long wait for foals uh, for any in vivo experimental um project that we wanted to do so i really hope this was helpful. It's a lot of information, but I was trying to give a brief um, kind of like what is new? What do we know out there? And it has been a great experience. So I hope everybody will enjoy it.
0: Well, Dr. Sons, thank you so much. Having having lived and worked in the thoroughbred industry in Kentucky for many, many years, I think that a lot of people are going to be very interested in trying to hear what uh, what you have to say today. And we Certainly appreciate you taking the time. And I am going to include an outline that Dr. Sons uh, gave to me that kind of covers some of the things she discussed today that will be in the article on equimanagement.com that goes along with this. So again, thank you very much, Dr. Sons, for joining me for this episode of Disease Deshure and thank all of our listeners. And a special thanks to our 2022 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. We invite you to listen and rate episodes of Disease Du Jour on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen to your podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K, Brown, at equinenetwork.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC.